welcome back to another episode of Don't Ghost Your Brain, the podcast where we dive into the fascinating world of neuroscience and psychology. I'm your host, Camille Casper, and the title of today's episode is The Nature of Nurture. I'm joined here today by an amazing guest, Dr. David Moore, the director of the Claremont Infant Study Center at Pitzer College. He received his bachelor's at Tufts University and his PhD at Harvard University. And currently, he is participating in a fellowship at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. He is highly knowledgeable in the fields of cognitive development, mental rotation, infant-directed speech, categorization in infancy, electrophysiology, and infant's perception of numerosity. So I think he's the perfect guest for today's episode. We'll be talking about his research that involves conversations surrounding nature and nurture, mental rotation in infants, and epigenetics. So we've got a lot to talk about today, so let's get right into it. Welcome, Dr. Moore. Thank you so much for speaking today. We're so grateful to have you here. So to start today's episode, I think it would be helpful to define a few terms um, that we will be using and integrating into today's discussion. So first off, what is nature and what is nurture? Well, um, those words go back hundreds of years, um, and they sometimes can be thought of as meaning different things to different people. But by and large, um, traditionally, most people have thought of nurture as being the sorts of things that are outside of our bodies that we experience as we develop. They include things like our diet and the way our parents raise us and what we learn in school, those kinds of things. In contrast, nature is usually thought of as being that which you are born with. Um, It's come to mean to a lot of people your genes, your DNA. Um, Other people think it just means biological things in general. So then why is this considered a debate or should it even be considered a debate? It is considered a debate, but I don't think it should be. Um, It is thought of as a debate because back in the 19th century, one of Charles Darwin's cousins, Francis Galton, had this idea that you could separate out nature and nurture by doing twin studies. And by doing that, you could get a sense of what people were born with, nature, versus what it is that they develop because of the experiences they have. And he thought that nature was more important than nurture. He thought he could demonstrate that empirically. And it kind of set up um, at least 150 years of arguing about um, how it is to that we might be able to um, disentangle the effects of biological kinds of things and um, non-biological kinds of influences. No, that makes sense. I I would argue as well that it's so interconnected that it's hard to separate one from the other. Um, Yeah, Um, I think that idea dawned on some people long ago and they had sort of an intuitive understanding of it. But in the last 20 years or so, we've come to understand a lot more about how exactly it is that our experiences effectively get under our skin and influence our biology. Um, And that's helped us understand that biology doesn't really do anything 
at all independently of the experiences that we're having. No, 100%. Um, and then while I was researching your research, I was incredibly interested in the paper, the development of mental rotation ability across the first year after birth, because it gives us a different perspective to this discussion on nature and nurture. So would you mind talking a little bit more about mental rotation? Not at all. Um, mental rotation is this cognitive ability that we all have. Um, it involves being able to look at something and imagine what that thing would look like if it was rotated in space. And we do this when we are following our GPS on our phone. Um, you have to imagine, okay, given the way the map is situated, am I going to want to take a right or a left at this next intersection? Um, we do it when we are looking at blueprints for a house, for instance, and trying to imagine where the bathroom is relative to the living room. Um, we do it in all kinds of contexts, and we don't ordinarily think about it being a, a single cognitive ability, but it, it really is. And people have been studying this ability for uh, probably about 50 years. Um, it started in the 1970s when a guy named Roger Shepard looked at the ability of um, adults to recognize when the letter R that was upright, um, when it was rotated a certain amount. Could they recognize that it was still the letter R just rotated? Uh, but sometimes he would invert the letter so that it was backwards. And in order, in order to know if it's backwards or forwards, you need to mentally rotate it back to its upright position and then ask yourself, is that a forwards R or a backwards R? Um, and what he discovered was that people could do it but it took them different amounts of time. The further it was rotated from the upright position, the longer it took them to rotate it back. Um, and that suggested that people were actually moving something in their head, kind of like they would in actual space. Um, it was not sort of an instantaneous process. So that was really interesting. The second thing he noticed was that men and women seem to have differential capabilities in this area. Um, men seem to be somewhat faster and somewhat more accurate at this kind of task. And in the ensuing uh, three or four decades, people tried to explain why is it that men would be better at mental rotation than women? And one of the arguments that was kind of thrown out there was a, a speculative argument that was rooted in evolutionary theorizing. The idea that was thrown out there was Maybe our ancestors way back in the day, the men would go off and hunt. And in the process of hunting, they needed to be able to have these men's rotation skills. But our um, women ancestors, females would stay at home by the fire and they would be um, hunt, they would be gathering. And I thought that this was frankly just stupid. Yeah. Um, it really didn't sit well with me because I don't think we really know what um, our primordial ancestors were doing. I don't know that there were such clear-cut um, gender distinctions at the time. And it wasn't even clear to me that if there were, that that would generate these kinds of um, differences. So I thought that one way to kind of combat that idea would be to look at babies and figure out 
do they have a, a sex difference? Do little baby boys do better at these kinds of tasks than baby girls? And there was no answer to that question when I first started thinking about this, because how do you get that kind of data from a baby, right? Mm -hmm. um, nobody really knew how you would test a baby. But I thought if we could figure out a way, then we could show that boys and girls were not different from each other. And then we could study the development of the difference and try to figure out what's causing boys to ultimately get better at this than girls. So I thought about it for a while. And because um, my background is as an infancy researcher, I spent 40 years studying babies between the ages of about um, newborn to 10 months. I recognized a way to do it. Um, it involved showing babies a picture on a uh, computer screen of an object that kind of rotates back and forth. And you show them that object from one perspective and they get used to it. And then you can show them that object from the backside and they've never seen it from the backside before. Okay. But simultaneously, when you show them the object from the backside, you also show them the mirror image of that object from the backside. And that's kind of analogous to what Shepard did when he showed people the letter R and the mirror image of the letter R. And what I thought was that um, we would find that these babies, we were testing four month olds, we thought that they would um, look at the backside of the object they'd been looking at all along and the backside of the mirror image object about the same amount of time because both of them were novel and the babies had never seen them before. We'd gotten them bored of looking at the object from the front perspective. And so we thought they just wouldn't, we thought they'd spend actually more time looking at um, the backsides of both objects. And sure enough, they did. But interestingly, the boys spent much more time looking at the backside of the mirror image than at the backside of the original object. Huh. What that told us was that they were kind of bored still by the backside of the original object, even though they'd never seen it before. And it meant that they must have been able to rotate in their head what they'd been seeing originally from the front. Uh -huh. Because they could rotate it and recognized it, it was boring and they were more interested in the mirror image version. But the girls didn't. So I was really frustrated, but you know, the data are the data. And in fact, the four-month-old girls did not show evidence of mental rotation and the four-month-old boys did. Wow. I did yeah. not know that it started with the R's. That's so cool. Um, yeah. But I think that's a fascinating like discovery. Um, and then did that have anything to do with meta-analysis as well? Um, it didn't initially because to do a meta-analysis, which is an analysis of analyses, you need to have a lot of different studies and ours was the very first and so there was no way to do a meta-analysis at that time um, frankly i was a little bit skeptical because when you do studies with babies your population size is necessarily small because you can't test ten thousand babies um, it's hard to test babies yeah. we test them one at a time they can cry in the middle of your study at which point we have to stop and send them home. Yeah. And so our studies typically have on the order of like 40 babies in them. And so for any given study, it, it may be some sort of um, weird statistical phenomenon. And so I, I wasn't really sure I believed it. 
So we tried to replicate the study and we found that with younger babies, three month olds, there was still a sex difference. And at that point, other people in our field started jumping in doing studies as well. And some of them did find a sex difference. Some of them did not find a sex difference. Most of them did find evidence for mental rotation, which was from my perspective, the important thing. Yeah. It showed that, wow, babies can actually do this even though they're really little. But people were primarily interested in the sex difference um, for honestly reasons that are still not entirely clear to me. But people were really interested in that. So when people didn't find sex differences, they would report that in the research literature. And after a while, we had like 20, 30 studies that we could do a meta-analysis on. And the meta-analysis that came out last year seemed to reveal that, in fact, the um, sex difference is robust. Um, it's not always present. It's not a, a consistent thing. It's not like all boys are good and all girls are bad. Um, you know, the distributions of the, the males and females overlap a lot. But on average, it seems to be the case that males are better at this than females, even in infancy. And we don't understand that yet, but it's really interesting. No, that's incredibly interesting. And especially like when I think about genes or even just sex differences as well, it seems so straightforward. Like in high school, like in our biology textbooks, it's so straightforward and it's deterministic and it's predictable with, you know, your Punnett squares and similar things, you know. Um, however, obviously it's probably not. And is it true that it is so predictable or obviously maybe this study could help, but do you think so? Um, it's definitely um, not the case that it's simple. Um, genes don't determine things independently of the contexts in which development takes place. So it is the case that we are taught in school about Punnett squares and we get this idea that you might have inside of you something called a big B that can help you have brown eyes and a little B that can make you have blue eyes. And if you have a little B from your mom and a little B from your dad, then you're gonna have blue eyes. But it turns out that when you go looking for these things inside a body, you can't find them. There is no such thing as a big B and there's no such thing as a little b. These things that we use in Punnett squares are abstractions that help us make predictions, but there aren't actually real things in our bodies that determine phenotypic outcomes like eye color. Um, the fact is these kinds of outcomes, how tall you are, what color your eyes are, whether you're shy, whether you're prone to be an alcoholic or um, overweight, none of these things are determined by genes. They're all influenced by genes, but they're all also influenced by experiential factors. And it was the realization that that's how it works that helped kind of sweep away the nature nurture debate. And people no longer um, engage in that debate if they really understand how biology builds our characteristics. No, that makes a lot of sense. And then based on that, can we talk about the concept of epigenetics as well? Sure. Um, epigenetics is, um, well, the word is actually really old. It goes back to Aristotle. <laughs> and um, Aristotle used it in a way to refer to the fact that there are things that appear that didn't previously exist. So way back thousand years ago, people thought maybe 
the way you have all your characteristics is that they're already present inside a sperm or inside of an egg. And you're just a tiny little person inside these so-called gametes, these sex cells. Mm -hmm. And that all the development is, is the growing of this really tiny little person. Aristotle thought that was wrong um, and that you don't actually have your characteristics before development occurs. He thought that there's a time before which you have a heart. And then at some point, your heart develops. And he called the process by which a characteristic coming into being, he called that an epigenetic process. Oh, okay. Um, that's the older meaning of the word. But in the 1940s, there was a developmental biologist named Conrad Waddington, who was in England. And he kind of resurrected Aristotle's word to refer to what happens inside of cells that turn genes on and off in order to um, help build the characteristics that we ultimately wind up with. And so ever since then, epigenetics has referred more specifically to these molecular things that are happening in our bodies, whereby certain small little molecules can turn genes on and off. And that has to happen during development because we all start off the exact same way. We all start off as a zygote. Yeah. A sperm and an egg came together. We were one cell. Yeah. We all were just this round, you know, one thing. But then as time goes by and development proceeds, that one cell becomes a whole bunch of different types of cells in our bodies. It becomes bone cells and muscle cells and nerve cells in the brain. And in order to become these different things, the different genes that are in the cells need to be either turned on or turned off. And so epigenetics now refers to these processes by which these small little chemicals inside of our cells turn genes on and off. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it definitely does. And then I guess, has that affected the way that we understand our genes? I mean, obviously like the way that we turn it on and off, but like, can we track when we can turn it on and off or is it kind of just up to the body? Um, it's up to the body, but we can track afterwards what happened. So we can look at a liver cell and see that it's different from a neuron a nerve cell in the brain. And when we look inside of that cell at the DNA, we can see that there are certain areas that are different than other areas in the other kind of cell. And those changes are something that occurred as the cell was developing either in the neural route or the um, kidney route or the liver route. Oh. So, so we can see that after the fact, but we don't really understand exactly how it all happens yet. We just know that it does. Yeah, no, well, uh, it's a quite a new field considered to, you know, the wide scope of biology. Um, yeah. But how has the advancement of epigenetics also influenced the understanding of like nature and nurture, like and our psychological behaviors as well? Well, it's helped us to understand that we really need to put the nature nurture debate behind us yeah. and understand that we are as we are because of how our biological factors interact with our non-biological factors. Um, one of the earliest studies to make this case um, was published in around 2004. It was working with rats 
and rats seem pretty different from us, yeah. but they're mammals and they have brains and they have mothers and in many ways they are similar to us. And the work that was done with rats has since been replicated with people in um, ways that vary slightly from how the original work was done, but that support the original findings. And the original findings showed that the experiences that newborn rats have when their mothers treat them in certain ways influence how their genome ultimately functions and changes what their personality is like when they reach adulthood. So rats that are licked and groomed a lot by their moms, and that's generally considered to be kind of a good thing in rat world. Mm -hmm. um, moms that are paying a lot of attention to their babies and licking them a lot. Um, it leads those offspring to grow up to be adults that are calmer and less reactive to stress in stressful situations. Whereas rats that are raised by mothers that don't lick and groom them a lot grow up to be much more reactive to stressful situations when they're adults. And it turns out if you look at the, um, the DNA inside certain cells taken from these rats' brains, you see that it's different from each other. In some cases, there were critical genes that were turned on, and in other cases, they were turned off. In some cases, it was not entirely clear whether or not the epigenetic differences that were seen in the offspring were related to genetic differences that originally made the mothers lick their offspring more. And so in order to do the study and demonstrate what exactly was going on, they had to cross foster the, the newborn rats. So they took the newborn rats that were born to mothers that did a lot of licking and grooming and the rats that were born to mothers that did not do a lot of licking and grooming and they swapped them in the nest oh. so that the ones who were born to the one, the mothers who did a lot of licking and grooming were raised by mothers that did not do a lot of licking and grooming. And sure enough, it was the experience that led to the epigenetic changes that turned on or off the various genes and that led to these differences in personality when the rats grew into adulthood. So it made it clear that the experiences we have can dramatically affect our um, behavior, right. which is a psychological thing. Um, and it can do so by um, effectively bringing those experiences inside the body and influencing how the genome functions. Okay. So then epigenetics do directly affect psychological behaviors and then do like just a personal question like do you like also like the things that you intake and consume like as in like the food that you take or how much water or like even the pollution like does that also affect us so there's not a ton of evidence yet about that but the evidence that we do have suggests that the answer is yes okay um, there are certain kinds of dietary supplements that you can take that increase the number of these small chemicals that can turn genes off. Um, there's also some evidence that some environmental toxins, which should be considered pollutants, that those can affect um, our epigenetic state. And interestingly, those studies have also shown that some of these epigenetic effects can be transmitted to subsequent generations. Huh. Okay. 
And then earlier you mentioned about twins. So let's say if we look at two twins, right? Often, even though they look almost identical, they have personalities that usually end up being different. So why do individuals exhibit different behaviors and traits? And is there psychological evidence to explain such a phenomenon or even considering siblings, not just twins, or is this even due to the nature and nurture? Um, that's just something I'm genuinely interested in. Yeah, um, it is um, because identical twins, or I should say so-called identical twins, because yeah. we know that right. they're not actually identical. Um, when you know a pair well, you generally can tell the difference between them. Yeah. Um, and But we know that um, these twins who technically are called monozygotic twins because they come from one zygote. Mm -hmm. Basically a single sperm and a single egg come together. You get one individual, but at some point, those cells that are making that one individual split in half and you wind up with two individuals. Mm -hmm. um, but they have the identical genomes. And it should have been obvious to all of us all along that the genes were not the only thing calling the shots because in spite of having identical genomes, these twins do not wind up completely identical to each other. Do they wind up looking very similar to each other? Yeah, and that's because genes influence all of our characteristics. And so you'd expect two individuals with identical genomes to be very similar to each other. But why are they not actually identical? It's because they're having different experiences. And as we've already said, the experiences interact with our biology to produce our characteristics. So the, the experiences are what are making the differences. And a really um, critical study came out, I believe it was like 2004, big group in Spain did this work on twins and they discovered actual epigenetic differences in monozygotic twins. And the differences between the monozygotic twins when they were very young were very small. But the older the twins got, the more the epigenetic profiles of the twins diverged, showing that the experiences that they were having out in the world, which were not identical, led to their different epigenetic states and probably could be thought of as contributing to their different psychological characteristics. Huh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think so, at least. Um, what are some other questions that we're still trying to research in the subfields of psychology? Well, there are a lot. Um, <laughs> unlike physics and chemistry, psychology is really a very young field. Um, it's, you know, a little over 100 years old, which yeah. is just not long to yeah. find stuff out. So mostly we don't know stuff. And so there's a ton to still know. Um, in the domain of epigenetics, as I kind of already alluded to, um, we don't really know how it is that cells make the decisions about which genes get turned on and which get turned off. We don't know very much about what sorts of experiences are influencing our genome or how. Um, one thing that's really important is if we want to use this information to pe make people's lives better, we need a way to um, target the epigenome, which is to say we need to be able to have methods for turning on or turning off certain genes when we think turning those genes off might make life better for someone or when we think turning them on might make things 
better for someone. The problem is that because it's epigenetic factors that are responsible for our different cell types, you have a different epigenetic profile in your liver than you do in your neurons, than you do in your bones. And so figuring out how to target the specific uh, genes is very, very difficult. Um, no one's figured out how to do it. So I mentioned that there are these dietary supplements that can increase the, mm -hmm. uh, the chemicals that turn off genes, but they do that kind of willy nilly yeah. in the body. And so that information is not actually really very valuable yet. Um. So there's still a, a ton to learn in epigenetics. In the domain of mental rotation, um, there's a, also a lot to learn. We don't know how or why it is that um, there seems to be this sex difference very early in development. There's some evidence uh, from some studies that I did with colleagues at uh, University of Cambridge that showed that um, some hormones that babies are exposed to when they're still in utero, um, that that influences their um, mental rotation competence. There's also some evidence from the same study that parents' attitudes about traditional gender roles influences um, their competence in our mental rotation test. And bottom line is we still really don't understand this very well at all. And we also, um, we, we do know that there are certain kinds of manipulations that we can implement that can help people who are not as good at mental rotation get better at it. But we don't really understand um, the best way to make that happen. It's not like a silver bullet, as it were, where you have a, you know, for example, a specific medication like an antibiotic that kills a very specific bug, like, um, you know, the uh, strep, yeah. the, the cause strep throat, right? It would be nice to have a, a very specific manipulation that we know all we got to do is do this one thing and this kid's going to be really great at mental rotation. We don't have that yet. So there's still a lot to understand. So we're just scratching the surface essentially. Um, in most of psychology, we're, yeah, we're still just <laughs> yeah, scratching. Yeah. A lot of the hows and whys we're still trying to figure out, but I, I think that was really interesting. So I guess fi to finally uh, wrap up this episode, I just want to know, is there any, books or articles or resources that you can recommend where people who want to learn more about applying epigenetics or other topics we discussed um, into their daily lives? So because epigenetics is as new as it is, there aren't really, actually scratch that. There are some books that tell you how to um, use what we know about epigenetics in your life. And those are written by people I don't trust. So um, the field is too new to really yeah. be able to offer useful, valid information about how to apply epigenetics in our life. So if you encounter a book telling you um, how to do that, you should not trust that book. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. At this point, we just don't really understand. Um, and the upshot is I can't really recommend anything practical, but for any of your listeners who are interested in the topic in general and what we do know at this point, I guess I think the best place to go would probably be the book I wrote about this topic, which is called The Developing Genome, 
Um, it was published by Oxford University Press and uh, won a couple awards. So I guess wow. it's pretty good. Um, and it's it's not so old at this point as to be um, outdated, even though it's about seven years old, it still pretty much captures the, the essence. Well, I'll definitely link it down below if you guys are interested. Um, but I think we had an amazing discussion. I'm really glad about where it went. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Moore. It was such a pleasure having you on this episode. I think that all of your insights were really powerful because I don't think most people realize how the stereotypical idea of nature and nurture as a debate is outdated essentially your expertise has shed light on the complexities of psychological development in infants and how that translates into epigenetics i hope you guys found his insights as interesting as i did thank you so much for joining us on don't ghost your brain today and make sure to listen fridays at 9 p.m pacific time